Hello, Psychology in Seattle podcast listeners. This is Bob Gettle. Um, I am thought about something I'd like to talk about, and um, it's been about two weeks since the last one I made, and I got published uh, on the website earlier this week, and uh, you all gave me a lot of feedback about it, and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Very encouraging to uh, do another one. So I don't want to just talk at you for the sake of talking. I only want to talk if I have something that I think is worth saying. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. This is sort of an adjunct to that. My name is Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle and a frequent, semi-frequent um, guest on uh, on that podcast. Did I just, was that redundant? Anyways, um, and uh, I see a lot of couples in my practice and I teach a little DBT and today I thought it would be interesting to talk about intention versus impact. One of the things that happens in couple counseling is you, it doesn't happen in couple counseling, it happens in relationships, where we, our intention, which is usually something positive or noble or at least not malicious, lands absolutely backwards with our partner where they interpret us as being mean or cruel or unfeeling or indifferent or something where the impact we have on them is really vastly different from the intention that we have. And when that happens, a lot of us, you know, we sort of slink back to the defense of, well, that's not what I meant to have happen, right? Um, we sort of find ourselves there and we hope or we think that it ought to be sufficient that our intention ought to be enough to get the other person to, you know, settle down or not be so mad at us. Like intention is the thing that matters. And guess what? It's the thing that never matters. Impact is the thing that really matters. It's not that intention is irrelevant. It's Of course it's relevant. Of course you don't want to um, come across to your partner as doing something mean or cold or whatever. But the way it lands is the way it lands. And that's what people respond to. They respond to the impact on them because it's all anybody could do. It's like um, the signal comes into their brain, what you said, what you did, what they heard, so forth. And their brain interprets it the way their brain interprets it. And out comes their response to it, some feeling, maybe disappointment or hurt or anger or whatever. And um, when they're having those hard feelings, they don't give a shit about what our intention is. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of a negative impact when your partner intended something positive or at least neutral, um, you know what I'm talking about. So that's everybody, right? Everybody knows uh, what it's like to be on the receiving end to have this crappy impact. So those of us who are acting, right, those of us who are intending something good or at least neutral, we wish that our partner would accept that that was that the impact um, wasn't what we meant, and that that would be enough to kind of ameliorate them to help their nerves settle down or help them be less upset. We wish that, but it's kind of like this. Let's say you own an old Volkswagen Bug, and um, anybody know anybody anything about old Volkswagen Bugs? You know that uh, those air cooled beasts. Um, have backfires every now and again when you get the timing out of out of whack. So the cylinders misfire and you get this loud explosion coming out the tailpipe. It sounds like a gunshot or a dumpster lid slamming shot. It's a loud kind of sudden thing. 
and it's startling. So anyways, let's say you own one of these air-cooled beasts from the 60s and 70s. I used to have one. I had a 71 bug, and um, uh, uh, my brother and I both had bugs, and we used to work on our cars together. And I know what it's like to have the thing backfire because I've mistuned it um, many times, and <laughs> that's the unfortunate result. But let's say that happens. I've got my, my Volkswagen, and I'm running down the road, and there you are. You're on the sidewalk. You're walking down the street. And the thing about you is, let's pretend, let's imagine in this world that you're a soldier coming out of a war. You're coming out of a war, and in the war, every loud noise, every loud noise was a gun or a bomb or someone trying to get you, right? And so what your body learns is loud noises are dangerous, and it overlearns it, actually, and so you don't have to think. Your body just moves into action when you hear a loud sudden bang like that, you hit the deck or you freeze or you find cover, but you you learn how to respond. Uh, that sounds too conscious. Your body learns how to respond and it does it really fast. That's actually the beauty of emotion is that you don't have to think for your body to respond. Uh, that's promotes survival. That kind of um, speed promotes survival. So you're walking down the street having come back from the war. I imagine it's a pretty surreal thing to be in a war one day where it's loud noises and guns and bombs and danger all the time. And then literally you can get on an airplane and within a day be plunked down in a city like Seattle and everything's safe and fine and loud noises don't mean danger at all. And then I drive by in my bug and I shift gears and I step on the gas and the thing chokes and you hear that loud bang coming out the tail. And your body knows this is danger and it turns it the fight or flight response just turns on automatically and you hit the deck in terror now i could pull my car over and get out and come up to you and say hey um yeah i see that you're scared right i didn't mean that for that to happen which of course is a factual statement of course i didn't mean for that to happen and nonetheless it has happened so do i really want to stand here and um argue with your emotion mind or say to you, hey, you shouldn't feel that way because you're not in danger. Because the truth is, is if you're a soldier coming out of a war, you should feel that way because that's the way anybody would feel if their bodies have overlearned that loud noises are dangerous. And I think in this example, you can imagine how cruel it would be to walk up to somebody and blather on about how it's safe and you didn't mean for that to happen and ignore their terror and their pain. I don't think any of us would do that. We would have care and sympathy and compassion and maybe some guilt um, about being the source of um, terror, right? But I don't think most of us would act coolly towards the soldier and say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Even though the impact has zero to do with any intention. And in fact, in my little example here, there's no intention of anything except driving my car down the street, going up to the grocery store or something, right? I didn't intend anything to happen, and yet here we are. Something's happened. So it it would be silly um, for me to defend my situation here, my car backfiring, and I wouldn't. I would just focus on and pay attention to and care about this person's terror and see if there's something I can do 
um, to ease their pain or um, help them feel safe. And really, the thing is, is that nothing can be done except to wait it out. A person waits it out and eventually their nervous system will settle and um, their brains will, um, the fight or flight response turns off in their brains. They have access to their thinking mind and they can look around and recognize that this ain't the war. And they might even get in their own grill, like, oh, I shouldn't respond this way. You know, this is nuts because, you know, um, I'm not in the war anymore and you're just driving a car and you didn't mean nothing, right? They might have guilt about the impact that we've, that the car has had on them. They might have shame about that, all right? But they didn't pick it. They didn't pick their impact. They didn't pick their response. It just happens and it happens faster than anybody could think. And suddenly they're on the deck in terror. There really isn't, when you think about it this way, there isn't really anything to be ashamed of or to apologize for. And indeed, it actually makes sense that the person would fill with this kind of terror and um, paralysis and, oh God, agony, right? It makes sense that that would be the case. And the thing about it is, in relationships, is we can't see the war that the other person came out of. Now, War is a pretty big word. Um, In my case, though, guys, I think it's an apt word because I come out of trauma, as you... (laughs) If you've listened to this before, you're well acquainted with the fact that um, I come out of a traumatic background. And without getting into the details or saying too much, so does my wife. And in fact, our couple counselor has referred to us as a trauma-trauma couple, meaning each of us has trauma in our history and each of us is prone to our own version of hitting the deck when some stimulus presents itself. Usually not a loud noise like that, but perhaps something else, a look, a gesture, a shift in focus. That's the one That's the one uh, I actually wanted to pay attention to today, the shift in focus and the way my brain works with that. So we don't, we don't choose these things, um, and she can't see my war. And if you just looked at me, you'd think, oh, yeah, regular normal guy, right? Just like me and everybody else, right? Because we can't see the, the scars or the scar tissue or um, the neural pathways that have been laid down in our brains. We can't see them. And so when the other person has this response that's disproportionate to the present moment, like the car backfire or filling the soldier with terror. The response is disproportionate, right? It's just completely understandable, right? That person's wound is a lot easier to see than um, than the wounds of those of us who come out of trauma. So I can't see Colleen's, and I can know about them, you know, 15 years together. I know a lot about her in 15 years, so she knows a lot about me too. We can know about these things, right? And still be hornswoggled by him. So, I'm not sure where this is going to go, but this happened the other day. We decided we'd have, you know, it's pandemic time, right? So we're both spending a lot of time in the house, and um, in some ways it's been really nice, and the weather here is starting to turn spring-like, right? It's turning spring, and so it's sunny out, and it's getting warmer. Still cool, it's in the 50s these days, but oh, even today, it's just a gorgeous day out there, and Colleen told me it's going to be in the 60s. A couple of days ago was a day like this. And I says to her, well, why don't we have happy hour out in the back? Right? We have this kind of nice backyard. And um, it's nice to sit there in the sunlight and have a drink and, you know, share time. 
um, little music going and so forth. It's one of the things that we like to do, and our dog will come out there and lay in the grass and nearby, and it's just kind of a nice time here at my house, just the three of us. So she says, yeah, okay, let's do that, right? And um, I fix her drink, because that's what I like to do. I like to make her drink. I make her a gin and tonic, and I get myself a beer. And uh, oddly enough, I poured my beer in a glass. It was an IPA, so it got really heady. So it took a long time for the thing to settle down, right? And so she was putzing around doing something, and then um, she's ready, and my beer's not quite poured yet, and I have to pee. So I leave the room, and I go pee, and I come back out. And I finish pouring my drink, and she's nowhere to be seen, right? And I go out into the backyard, and there she is in the upper corner, the back corner of the yard. We have a neighbor who, um, her dog lately has been coming over in the daytimes when she's at work and hanging out at our house. He's a really sweet little guy. We we both like him. I keep threatening to kidnap him um, because he's just a fun guy to have in the house and um, just a loving little creature. Anyway, so Colleen is uh, in the back corner uh, talking to Christy, and I walk out, and I've got our drinks, and I see that, right? I see that, and that's the car backfire for me. She's in the back, and she's standing there, and she's chatting with our neighbor, and my brain turns this thing, this thing happens, right? It happens. I sort of get all angry. I get peevish, and I'm like, well, you know, what the hell, man? We were going to have our drink here, and now we're not, and okay, fine, I'll wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and 10 minutes go by, and she's still chatting with the neighbor, and finally I'm annoyed enough to say, Colleen, in that sort of bitchy voice that I sometimes get. And she's like, okay, Christy, I gotta go, and, you know, she comes back, and at that point I'm like, hmm, all snotty and snobby, and like, I don't, not snobby, but pissy, right? I'm angry and I don't want to have a drink with her anymore. I just kind of don't want to, right? And one of the things that happens for the soldier is they hit the deck in terror. I wish that sort of thing happened for me. Unfortunately, what happens to me is much, much more active and I get blamey and critical. I'm like, well, you know, come on, what the hell you're supposed to. I was just going into pee and then, you know, I was coming right out and there you are. And the car backfire for me isn't that she's talking to our neighbor. Well, it sort of is. It's the way my brain interprets it. What I see is I'm not important. I'm a throwaway. I'm going to come second. I'm not her priority. Something else is. And it's always this way. It's always something else is the priority, right? I don't know if that's true or not. How could it not be true at least sometimes, right? I mean, you know, the neighbor's there and you're just chatting and it Maybe if you're Colleen and you're just standing there and chatting, it doesn't have anything to do with priority, right? It's not like you're thinking, oh, this is really important. You just find yourself chatting. Maybe it's something like that. Or maybe, yeah, she wanted to attend to the neighbor. She wanted to be um, polite and exchange and, you know, all that. Um, And maybe in that moment, the neighbor is the priority. But maybe it's not so simple as that, because what it says to me isn't so much that I'm not a priority, is I'm not important. Now, when I say it out loud here in the podcast, it's a little bit embarrassing, because of course I know I'm important to her. I'm the most important person in her life. She acts this way. She says this to me, and um, I know that in my cognitive head, just like the soldier knows in their cognitive head that they're in a city and Uh, that's safe and it's just a car backfire. Somewhere in their cognitive brain, they can know that. 
In the moment, though, that's not where they are. Their limbic system is turned on and they're full of terror. And so has mine. My limbic system turns on and I'm full of anger in my case, right? Anger at the thought that I'm not important. Uh, the thought that I'm not important. It's not really a thought like the way you, th you think. It's more like an assumption or a belief or an, um, an expectation, there's an expectation that I'm not important, that my importance is maybe hanging by a thread. And so when she's back there, the thread has gotten cut. I think other people who don't come out of um, this kind of, uh, who don't have this mindset, you know, they see something like that and they feel differently. Maybe they're annoyed. I don't know. Maybe they're just patient or maybe they're like, okay, well, I'll wait and I'll do something else. You know, it's no big deal. I imagine Kirk is like that where he can see such a thing, excuse me, and it's no big deal. Or maybe they recognize their own importance and um, they value it enough to say to their partner, hey, can you come join me? Or to the neighbor, I'm going to steal my lady back. <laughs> She's got a date with me right now. Um, something soft, something um, genial, something with a bit of... Um, Without the edge, without any thorns in it, because they're not necessary. Maybe folks can do that. I don't have access to that when I hit the deck in my my reaction. Um, I don't think that way. I don't think soft. I always think hard. I don't like that about me, but that's um, that's what happens. I, I don't want to. I want to say that again. It's not that I don't like that about me. It's I don't like that that happens, and I feel bad about its impact on her. Um, and I'm. At the same time, I'm like that soldier. I don't pick my response. It just happens. So anyway, so she comes She comes uh, to the lawn chairs and <laughs> she sits down. And I think uh, we've got enough history where she knows what's going on. And she's like sort of on the lookout for, uh-oh, right? Is this going to devolve into some crappy fight and, you know, whatever. And me too. I'm like, oh shit, is this going to devolve into a crappy fight at the same time as I'm just mad, right? And so I do what I think I'm supposed to do and I bring it up and I'm like, you know, all it says to me is that I'm not your priority or that I'm not important to you or something like that. And I'm chewing on that and I'm thinking about that. And, you know, there probably have been times in the past and it certainly would be understandable that she might say to me, well, look, that's not my intention. I was just talking to our neighbor. I didn't really have any intention at all, kind of like the car backfire. There's no intention whatsoever, and yet here's the impact. And so where I started was to try to describe a situation where, you know, intention doesn't really matter and impact is everything. And I think I might be shifting my thesis here a little bit because what I did do um, I think was important. What she did was important too because she actually didn't push that point. She just... I don't know what was going on for her, but she actually didn't say much. And so I'm not, I'm pouting a little bit and I'm quiet and I'm thinking about it. And I say to her, finally, I say, look, I think it's my fault. I don't know if I use that word exactly, but I think it's on me because it's actually not your job to anticipate my need. It's mine. And it's really hard for me to take my own need seriously and to think that it's okay to assert it. You know, i probably just as scared as she is about offending people. And so instead, I uh, don't take the risk and I don't uh, cross the burning bridge, if that's a way to put it, and reach for her and ask for what I want 
right? Softness isn't what comes to me. I wish it was, and there are probably lots of times when it is, but not in this moment, not when I'm feeling that way. So I say to her, look, I think this is on me, even though I'm still mad. I think this is on me because I have such a hard time asserting what I want, saying what I, you know, I want to have happen. And so I'm vulnerable to getting all pissy and angry. And I'm sorry. I guess what I like about it is I'm owning my response. There's a power in that. Um, I think there's a recognition of part of reality that it really is up to me to satisfy my my needs. And uh, she gets to come along for the ride with that. But anticipating what my needs are is impossible. They say when the oxygen masks drop when you're in the airplane, pardon me, they say, put on your own first. And I think I live a life where I'm vulnerable to thinking that I'm supposed to put on the other person's oxygen mask and that mine's not okay. My uh, therapist uh, (laughs) is a very interesting man. Uh, He's a boxer, or he has been in the past. Uh, And from what I can tell from what he's mentioned to me, a pretty serious one too. He trained pretty hard. Um, And let's see, why am I telling you this? The other day he and I were talking and I was asking him something about asserting. And he said, you know, before he learned how to box, he was more... mm, put the other person first and ignore his own needs. And there, there's something about boxing that taught him um, how to how to value himself and how to um, look after and take care of his own needs. So he goes on these meditation sits and uh, I was asking him a question about it because, you know, the silent meditation sits, you don't uh, you don't speak at all. And whatever interactions you have with people, you do it without speaking. There are no words. There's still lots of communication. I guess people find a way to work shit out, right? Uh, But they don't speak in words. And so I said to him, all right, so you're in line to get some food, right? And (laughs) there's three people in line. There's two servings of whatever they're serving left. What do you do? And all I can imagine is putting my own hunger aside and... um, the agony that it would be to take somebody, what my brain would say is somebody else's meal from out from under them. And he said to me, um, yeah, I used to feel that way. And I don't think he actually answered the question about what he would do, but what he indicated to me was that he felt okay about asserting his own need. And even as we were talking about this, I was thinking, if you're on one of these meditation sits and they're serving food and they run out of food, there's a really good chance that that's not the last food in the place and that other food can be had, right? I'm thinking, oh shit, <laughs> that's the last meal anybody's ever going to have. <laughs> and uh, so I better defer. And he's like, no, I think I've learned to take care of myself. So Colleen's in the back corner of the yard and I have not um, learned to take care of myself. And quite frankly, guys, I haven't been aware as much as I need to be that that's actually an option to say what I want, to speak my own mind. Um, I think it's inviting a war, it's inviting conflict. And um, I have a reason for that. Um, Assertiveness in my grown-up family, I think uh, each of us in my grown-up family has a hard time with that. So we don't, and we tend to be deferential, and I think ever hopeful that um, 
if we have a need, that someone else will anticipate it. And I think as a result, we can be a little bit brittle when somebody actually does assert a need. It's sort of like the implication being, you did not anticipate, and you should have. So I've noticed that uh, at least some of us in my family can get kind of defensive when that's the case. Um, I'm one of the ones that can. So anyways, I say to Colleen, I think this is on me, but it is so hard for me to speak and say what I need said. It's going to come out hard and harsh because I feel hard inside. I feel harsh. And that's actually probably true, is it probably would be a sledgehammer for what all the force that's needed for a thumbtack. You know, just I come on, I have a vulnerability uh, of uh, at least feeling like I'm going to come on too strong. And I probably have um, in the past. Well, probably. That's bullshit. Of course I have. And softness isn't the first thing that comes to me. So let's see, we started with the difference between intention and impact, and now we're on to personal responsibility. It's not what I thought was going to happen. I'm not even sure that I'll um, give this one to Kirk to uh, use. Um, but I'm going to hang in there for a sec more and see where see where we land. So I said that to her. And there was sort of a cool detente between us, a kind of a trepidatious, okay, now what? At least we're not fighting. And I just said to her, hey, can I have a do-over? <laughs> can we just start over? And she smiled, and I think she relaxed a little bit, and she said, yeah. And so we did. We had our drink, and we had a nice uh, afternoon of it um, out there in the backyard. So I guess I'm thinking about responsibility. And I'm concerned that what I'm saying to you is a bit garbled and confused and that mm, starting with intention and impact and ending up with personal responsibility sounds like a contradiction in thesis or terms. And I know it's not, but I don't know that right this second I can do a better job at, uh, saying why that is. I bet if you're listening, though, and you have a bit of distance, you may have your own ideas about that. And right now, I can't see the forest for the trees. I'm going to pause it here just to see what we see. Well, I took a couple minute pause there so that I could just settle down and collect myself and reorient to the message I mean to send out there into the universe. Um, and here's here's what I'm thinking. Intention does not matter. And because it doesn't matter, we don't have to get that defensive when our partner describes the impact that we've had or the impact that they're experiencing. It isn't necessary because, of course, we didn't intend anything bad to happen. Their limbic system is turned on and they're upset. And we have a possibility of doing them a great service by simply acknowledging that that's the that that's the impact that's been had here that the soldier is on the deck frightened or the partner is on the deck frightened or the partner is activated and angry or scared or um ashamed or vulnerable or fearful or whatever um that that's indeed that's the case and that our partner doesn't pick it. They don't pick the impact that they experience. 
So if it's possible, if we can take a deep breath and recognize that mm, my partner's been in a war that I have never seen, I don't have any direct knowledge of, and so I don't know necessarily what their battle scars are, and I don't need to get all bent out of shape. I don't need to get defensive about that because I love them. And because if they're in pain, I actually am interested in their well-being and welfare. Now, it's hard because if my partner activates, and like in my case, if I get all pissy and I go after Colleen, her limbic system, her fight-or-flight response is going to turn on, and now I'm having an impact on her. And now we've got these two people that are pinging off one another, right? Very much impacting one another in ways that aren't intended. Um, And then, so she's busy with that. So it's not like it's easy to be available in this way. I think it requires a great deal of practice. And, you know, if Kirk were here, one of the things he might say is, you're going to practice that your whole life, and you're going to get somewhere, but you're not going to ever get done. Maybe you get down the road some. Um, But you have a raw spot here, and you're probably going to be working with that for a long time. I think that's probably true. I think for Colleen and me, Um, recognizing that we're a trauma-trauma couple is really helpful to us because it lowers our expectation of um, how things ought to be and creates uh, freedom for how things are and um, a flexibility. It's hard. I think we um, can wear each other out. We can be exhausting to one another. Um, But we still love each other and we still want to be together. And uh, I think we are accepting that that's how it is sometimes. So I don't know how that fits with the other bit about taking responsibility. It is my responsibility, the impacts that I feel. And it's also my uh, birthright to address them. I kind of think of birthright in this way. You're born with DNA imperatives, you know, for like safety, for food, for air, for, in the case of humans and other mammals, for comfort, for soothing from the other mammals around you. It starts in our culture with uh, your grown up family and um, that will then translate into the family that you create as an adult, maybe uh, through um, you know, couple, couplehood, or maybe other ways, um, where you, you create your family. I've created a very nice family, uh, here in Seattle, people that I really love and care for, who love and care for me. And, um, we enjoy each other and that's been nice. Uh, so I think that anyways, family could come in lots of flavors. How the hell did I get on that? I don't know how I got on that. I think I'm uh, it, I'm the only one, actually, that can work with my trauma responses. Ultimately, the soldier who's hit the deck and terrified of the loud car bang, ultimately, that's the only person that can work on their trauma. Um, it's not that others can't assist or be part of the solution, part of the treatment. But ultimately, if it's my terror, it is indeed mine. And if it's going to change, I'm the one that has the power and capacity to actually make the changes. And I can employ other people in helping with that.
be nice to think about employing Colleen and helping me with mine instead of the stark, well, it's my responsibility. Could you help me would be a hell of a thing to ask, wouldn't it? I get so scared. Could you help me? Even as I say it out loud here to you guys, I feel a tenderness in my heart sort of well up and some tears come to my eyes. And, you know, it's funny because <laughs> she's sitting 15 feet away from me in the other room typing away. She's working from home today, too. I like the idea of asking for help. And I think, no, if I ask for help, I think, sorry, I keep saying I think, she'd be there, she'd want to help. And in the times when I have asked for help, she has. The other night, um, I wouldn't, I didn't put this together, but the other night uh, I worked late uh, till like eight and then had some other stuff to do. Um, so uh, work ended and, you know, her work ends probably, you know, five, five thirty, six somewhere in there. And I, I was working till eight on Tuesday and um, good sessions, but provocative stuff. And um, <laughs> when it was over, you know, um, my body's sort of quivering with activation, you know, some anxiety and some excitement. And um, uh, uh, a sense of the of awe, I guess, and the enormity of um, what it's like to interact with couples. And so I just go in the bedroom and she's laying there and she's watching some show and she reaches down and she clicks the remote and she pauses the thing. And I just say, I'm coming in for the real thing, babe. And she's not sure what I mean. And I just sort of climb on the bed and sort of climb on top of her. And we ended up just sort of laying there cuddling. And I just needed to connect with her, I told her. And um, we had a nice moment. I suppose when she's standing in the back corner, I'm having a need like that. It comes out as anger. Anger is really interesting because anger is desire for connection. You know, for engagement. Um... I wonder if there's a way to reach for her, not necessarily interrupt her conversation, but I'm scared. Can you help me? Can you reassure me that I'm important to you? And then she doesn't have to be mucking around with her intention, and I don't either. And I can deal directly with the impact that I'm experiencing that I didn't choose in such a way that I get the soothing that I need, like the soldier needs who's hit the deck on the sidewalk. That's a nice thought. Uh, and I think a real thought, I think a real possibility. And a vulnerable one too. It's vulnerable to say to somebody, can you help me? Not you should help me or God damn it, I deserve help. But can you help me? To really ask, that's quite a thing. Anyways, um, I think that's all I want to say. I'm not sure what this is like. I don't know if I'm going to listen to it or not um, before I send it to Kirk, or even if I will. But nonetheless, if you have feedback that you um, want to uh, send my way, I welcome it. I've been really touched and flattered by your feedback, but I welcome all feedback, positive or negative. Welcome is a strong word. The negative feedback, while there'll be a part of me that appreciates it, I do cringe a bit. That doesn't mean you should shut up. Um, you shouldn't. If you have something to say, go ahead and say it. And let's, let's find out what that's like.
And as Kirk always says, take care of yourself out there, guys, because you deserve it. Take care.